We're here to share with you inspiring stories that bring to life all the little and big ways that people bring more love, joy, laughter, and humanness to everyday life. Our focus is the hunt for those little moments that refuel the human soul and reminds us what life is really all about. I invite you to sit back, enjoy the moments, enjoy the stories, the adventures, and the journeys. Welcome back to another episode of What the World Needs More of. My name is Jerick Robbins. I am your host for this journey today. We are joined by a special guest, Susan Sly. Susan, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I am deeply honored to be here. It is a pleasure. Now, we're going to dive straight into the question of the show, which is what do you believe the world needs more of? <laughs> That's such a powerful question. You know, and, and I think that um, I know there are listeners all over the world. And sometimes we look at our lives. My oldest daughter is from uh, Malawi, Africa, Jarek. And, and I think how she might answer the question might be different than a child that um, I liberated from a brothel in Cambodia or um, someone, uh, you know, here in the United States or, or Canada, where I'm from originally, my personal opinion, and it is just an opinion for what it's worth, is that I feel right now the world needs more understanding. I feel like living in America, there's a massive amount of divisiveness and you know, as a mixed race woman, as a business owner, as a mom, sometimes I'm like, wait a minute, you know, really, let's just take a moment, take a breath and, and just pause and say there's a human being on the other side of that, you know, political party role someone has, you know, whatever it is, color of their skin. And, and I just think that's what we need more of right now. Mm. I think that's beautiful. How do you as a as a mom, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, as a powerful woman in society, how do you bring more of that to life each day? It starts with me. Um, you know, <laughs> I am in this place in my life where I am in the shadow of 50. I can't even believe it. Like, how did that even happen? Um, so I'm, I'm 46 years old now. I'm turning 47. And throughout my life, the theme of understanding has been ingrained in me, you know, from the time I was a little kid by my dad, I was, I was raised by a single dad, his name is Joe. And Joe was, you know, back in the 70s, there weren't a ton of single dads. And, and Joe was an engineer, he worked on the pacemaker, he worked on the microprocessor. And from a very early age, he had me reading books like, Oh gosh, the art of war, the lotus and the Jew. Like it was just like it goes on and on. And he's like, Susan, you know, there's there's beauty everywhere, and it's so important to be curious. And from curiosity, I learned understanding. And I was I was never so self righteous that I wasn't going to, you know, pick up the Book of Mormon or you know 
ask people about their culture, their religion, and all of the countries that I've traveled to. I think it's 33 and counting or something. And so it's a practice that I have daily. And when I find myself, you know, making a judgment and I love, um, you know, Gabby Bernstein, I know she's a friend of yours and uh, wrote the judgment detox, great book. When I find myself in that place where I'm a little bit judgy, I am human, I'm not perfect. I take a breath and I step back and I say, wait a minute, on, on the other side of whatever's going on, what could be something different than what I'm thinking right now? So as an example, you know, let's say I'm driving with kids in the car and someone cuts us off in traffic. My first thing isn't, oh, what an idiot. My like, oh, maybe that's a person rushing their wife to the hospital or maybe someone got a call from school. Goodness knows I've received so many of those and so-and-so's fallen off the, the you know, the whatever they are, you know, the play structure. And, and I always seek to tell myself a story that's a more positive outcome. And I, I learned that in so many times in my life, Jarek, and, and it's, again, I'm not perfect, but it's something I do work on practicing every day. Mm. That's powerful. That's powerful. It changes everything. Thank you. Here's a question. What would you consider to be your wow factor? What makes you uniquely you? And what are some of the moments that help shape it? (laughs) Well, if it's okay with you, I'll start with the moments. And, um, I want to speak specifically to, anyone who's ever been bullied, anyone who's ever been ostracized, anyone who's ever felt different, um, you know, maybe they look different. One of my earliest recollections of an event that that really transformed me, when I was a a little kid, I was, I, I must've been, you know, around four or five years old. I was what they call a latchkey kid. Now, these are things that in North America, they wouldn't do with kids these days, really, but um, because child services would take that kid. But in other countries, it's it's fairly normal. And I know, Jarek, you've traveled extensively. So if someone's listening to this in Africa or Vietnam or, or you know Guatemala or any of these countries, they might go, well, Susan, that's pretty common here. But back in these days, it wasn't so common. And so I would walk to school and I had a key for my apartment around my neck. And it was, I believe, around like a shoelace, a big, long shoelace. And then I had the key. So a lo- my mother, um, who I was with at the time, was very religious. So I wasn't allowed to wear shorts. I um, always had to wear full length, long dresses. And we would go to um, in rural Canada, we would go to these big, it was like a barn and it was all like used clothing, like a Goodwill kind of thing. And she'd buy these really long dresses. And so the kids made a lot of fun of me. And and I was this kid, I was just seeking to belong. I was, I just wanted to be quote unquote normal and no one would ever play with me. And I got teased a lot and bullied a lot. And then one day the kids, the popular kids in my apartment complex said, the words I had been longing to hear, Susan, will you come play with us? And I just, jerk, my little heart was soaring. And, and I was like, oh yeah, I'd love to come and play. Like, where have you guys been? Like, I've been thinking about this forever. And they said, let's go play hide and seek. And I was living at the time in what would be considered like public housing now. 
And so there were different doors to get into the complex. And they said, okay, let's go. And hey, Susan, let's go down here. And so we went in this door and we go down into the, the very bottom of the basement. And imagine in apartment buildings, if you will, that that bottom floor, the stairs kind of end. There's a small room. It's all concrete, dark. And the kids surrounded me in a circle and they took a rubber skipping rope and they started lashing me and beating me. And at first I was shocked, obviously. And then I started to cry. And then I, I had this moment where I was like, just forgive them for they know not what they do. I was, you know, I was um, from the Bible. I just remember that Jesus saying that. And suddenly I had this peace in my heart and I saw them with such compassion. I saw, you know, I remember some of their names now and they took my shoes and they they were, they left me like, um, you know, with, in a lot of pain, bloody, no shoes. And, and I saw these kids, it was like, I, I stepped out of my body and I had such compassion for them. And that, that moment, I always say, you know, it, you're, you're, your pain can define you or refine you. And that was one of the key moments in my life where I said, you know, if I can have compassion for someone who's doing such a, a horrible, violent thing to me, then where else can I have compassion? And can I have compassion for myself? And and I'm not going to say I'm I'm so altruistic and deserve to be canonized, but I will say that that moment in time also drove me. It also allowed me to go, you know what, I, even if I am going to be different, even if I am not, you know, belonging to a popular group or whatever, that I'm going to be okay. And I'm a survivor. And so that was one of my earliest memories and something that really still to this day. And, and, you know, I know bullying is something that we speak about in the news and, and being ostracized for different reasons. It's, it's constant. My message to whoever it is, and you know who you are, that you are a survivor and, and you can always take that pain and use it for good. And that's what I've continued to do through my life. So powerful, so powerful. Now, this is an interesting question after what you just shared, but what's a moment that made you feel incredibly humble over all the years? Mm. Well, your your show is about stories, and um, I will disclaim this. <laughs> I never I never swear, so I'm not gonna like. Don't worry, we'll still get a good clean rating on iTunes, but um, I it, it is a bit graphic, and it's definitely one of the most humbling moments of my life. So um, I, you know, for a long time had had a passion to liberate kids from child trafficking. And I think where that really stemmed from was my own childhood had a lot of vulnerability in it. And so back in, oh gosh, it was around 2006, 2007, I headed to Cambodia to visit a trauma center in Phnom Penh for kids, specifically girls who had been liberated from trafficking. And at the time, the youngest one in there was four years old. And um, I, you know, I, I proceeded to go back and visit the trauma center. It was myself and also Hugh Jackman and his wife who were the biggest funders of this center. And um, generally speaking, 
the public, no one could go there. You, there were there were all sorts of restrictions in place and background checks for obvious reasons. And I did some crazy things. Uh, one night, a friend of mine, Sano and I, uh, Sano worked for an NGO over there, a non-governmental organization. And he and my husband and I went undercover in a brothel. And during the day, at this period of time, that was a few years ago, the brothels were usually restaurants by day, but it was night. So I, I dressed all in black. And I used to be a men's maximum security prison guard. So I do want to disclaim this. Don't ever go and do this, boys and girls. Don't do what I'm about to tell you. So I dress all in black, leather jacket, motorcycle boots. And Sano and my husband, Chris, who you've met, is blonde, blue-eyed. We're in an um, unmarked van with tinted windows. And Sano and Chris get out first. And the van circles around and lets me out about, you know, around 100 150 feet behind them and you can see all these really young girls coming up to my husband and my and our friend Santa is pretending to be his broker and it was just not shocking because you hear the stories but these are really you know girls that are you know 12 but they've got a ton of makeup on 13 years old and we go into this restaurant slash brothel. There are guys with AK-47s in the alcoves. Everyone's getting patted down. Chris and Santa go in. I wait. I come in. They're like, what are you doing here? And again, I don't swear, so I'm not going to say exactly what I said, but you know, I'm kind of in character. And I said, listen, I'm a, a teacher teaching at the American School. I've had a really bad bleepity bleep day. Can a girl not get a drink here? And I go up to the bar and Chris and Santa were at our table. There's a group of guys um, sitting there and uh, there's a girl giving one of them, a, you know, oral sex. And the other guys are cheering him on like it's a freaking Super Bowl Sunday. An older man walks out with a young boy to have sex with him. And uh, we called um, the the IJM International Justice Mission after we left to come in and do a raid. But we almost got killed that night. Um, on the same trip, I went into, or not, sorry, on another trip, the same, um, the same place, I went into the trauma center and I spent the day interviewing the girls and, uh, you know, the, the stories, the little ones who had been sold on the virgin auctions, the virgin auctions, if people, listeners don't know what these are, they often children um, who are at risk, especially in Southeast Asia, India, different places, will be sold by a relative to pay off a gambling debt, um, a whole host of reasons just to make money. And um, little girls telling the story about how they'd be lined up in these houses, dressed in pajamas, given drugs, and then someone would come in and buy them for a week, um, you know, for $1,000 at that time was the going rate. And then they would get um, they, you know, be given a local anesthetic and get sewn up with a sheep's hymen so they could be resold again as a virgin. And um, one of the little girls, I was interviewing her and she, you know, just she had been sold um, into sex slavery by her mom to pay off a gambling debt. And she was crying and crying. And I was holding her and she's like, I wish you were my mommy. And, it, you know, Jarek, I, 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 I do and I'm, you know, with me, what you see is what you get. You and I have known each other for a long time. But um, I do 
it, it was humbling for, you know, every obvious reason. And I do sometimes lose patience with people. And I do lose my understanding with people when you've got people complaining, you know, that, oh, you know, I only bought my kid a new Porsche for Christmas. Like what, you know, like really, I just, when, when you're immersed in the developing world, or even, you know, here in Phoenix, where I live, it's one of the the top trafficking cities in the United States, when you're immersed in that world, or you meet kids who've come through that, you will never be the same, you can't look at the world in a different way. And as a parent, um, you know, I can't look at the world in a different way. So definitely the most humbling. And when I'm having my own moments, I think about these kids. And I say, you know what, I have nothing to complain about, really. So true. So true. Uh, We had a a good friend on an earlier episode who went on a sting operation um, with an an organization called Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. And they they help pull those kids out. It's very similar to what you you were were doing. And he had the same experience. He says, you know... um, it, it was interesting. He was talking about his his shadow mission, meaning when he got called. Uh, long story short, he had had a tough upbringing in life. He had, you know, at one point done drugs and then sold drugs and then finally got his life together. Finally got married. Finally had kids. You know, good businessman. Everything's going good. And and he gets a call and they said, Hey, do you want to go on this mission and help save these kids? And part of him was like, Can't I just write a check? Or couldn't you call me when my life was completely screwed up? <laughs> Like, mm. it's a lot easier to go help when you got nothing to lose. And yeah. he's like, you know, but but he's like, everything's good. I got kids. I, I got a good business. Everything's fine. Like, why do I have to risk my life now to help somebody? He's like, can't I just send some money for the cause? And then he looked himself in the mirror and he said something that's really important, which was, you know, if I say no to go help right now, that means there's some part of my being that's okay with this going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's my shadow mission. And he said, I'm, I'm not okay with that. And he said, so of course I'll be there. Where do I go and what do I need? And he, he signed up, packed up and got moving. And, and it's that peace when so many people see an opportunity to help. And this stuff, like you said, is going on everywhere. And yeah. there's that moment that if you don't do something about it, you're allowing that shadow mission to be alive in your nervous system and say in some way, shape or form, you're saying, I'm okay with that. It's not that big of a deal. And, you know, it takes people to step up and step out of their comfort zone and step out of where they're at and say, no, I'm, I'm not okay with that. And I'm willing to raise my hand. I'm, I'm willing to, in this case, like you said, do not repeat what you just did. Yeah. <laughs> but speak up, call somebody, call the police, be like, hey, something's going down right there. That's not cool. Go do something about it and, and, and voice it, vocalize it. I think one of my favorite groups I've ever heard of, um, and I can't remember the name of them. They're a group of grandmas in India who wear all pink saris and have mm-hmm. these big sticks they carry. And when they hear that there's in-home violence going on, like a husband is hurting his wife, this pack of grandmas shows up at your house and beats the tar out of you with the <laughs> stick. <laughs> now, I'm not one for violence, but if you started the fight, these grandmas are surely going to end it. And, and they make sure that there's never a problem ever again in this household. And it works. And, and so it's this group of, of, you know, outlaw grandmas. 
and the police can't do anything. I mean, they, they try to stop him, but it's a grandma. Like, what you, <laughs> grandma, stop it. <laughs> and it's just something where someone said, enough. Enough is enough. It's not going to happen ever again. Not in my family, not in my village, not in my community. And, and a group of powerful, older women in this case, which makes it even more entertaining, um, showed up. And they put a pink sari on, a pink outfit. And they show up with these big old sticks. And they just whack the tar out of you until you never do it again. And, and it works. You know, there's a pattern that shows that violence has ended in these households once they've had a visit by this group of grandmas. <laughs> by the rogue grandmas. I love that. <laughs> it's just like, wow, grandmas took it into their own hand. Like in the U.S., that used to be nuns. You know, the nun with the ruler would set you straight. Well, mm. apparently in India, it's the grandma with a stick. And she will get you. Um, but it, it what it does, and as silly as this sounds, it, to hear stuff like that, it relays a standard in society that says that's not allowed here. That's mm -hmm. not okay. And you will be greatly and severely punished if you try it. And what's interesting is a lot of times with freedom, you were talking about U.S., Canada, Australia, different places like this, there's more and more and more freedom to do whatever we want, however we want it, whenever we want, wherever we want. Uh, and, and to some extent, every now and then, you know, when a line is crossed and some of them are easier to see than others, you know, sex trafficking or buying or selling a child. Like these are some pretty deep lines that are clear when people cross. But even some of the simple stuff people do, verbal abuse or, or being aggressive or mean spirited or attacking one another verbally or online. At some point, standards need to be redrawn in society and said, hey, that's not allowed here. If you do that, there will be consequences. And yeah, I'd love, I, I just want to throw this out there. I'd love the, the standards. Like, what happened to the standard of kindness? Like, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me, just the simple act of kindness, just the simple act of, you know, being, being just a good person. It's like, are, you know, the pendulum always swings. I think anyone who's, who's lived for decades and decades and decades, they go, oh yeah, the pendulum always swings. It's one way or the other. I think just having that standard of kindness, like go out your door in the morning and just be a good person. <laughs> there was a book recently, I just talked about this a couple episodes ago. There was a book re written recently where they went and did research inside of large organizations and they found out that there was actually more positive stuff happening than negative. It's just the negative stuff was very loud and the mm -hmm. positive stuff was kind of quiet. Meaning, mm -hmm. you know, we've been taught through religion and, and community and friends and, and society that when you do something kind or you do something generous, you're supposed to be humble about it. You're supposed to be quiet about it. You're just supposed to do it because it's the right thing. You're not supposed to be loud about it. You're not supposed to tell people about it. It's not about the video of you helping someone. It's about helping someone. You shouldn't have to video it. The problem, yeah. the, the beauty of that is it creates humble servants who are helping and serving others. The problem with that is right now in society, negativity and or violence or, or bad stuff has become so loud that most people think society is a bad place and things are getting worse. And what the book proposes is, and he says within a business, an organization, you wanna create prisms of praise, like a prism that takes light and reflects it in all directions. And you wanna create, you wanna spark prisms of praise in your organization where when someone sees something positive, they're trained and rewarded for getting very, very loud about it. And I mm. think that's something in society of making positivity louder where 
we become prisms of praise. We become prisms of goodness. When you see something good happening, you light that up in every way possible and you get everyone around you to yell and scream beautiful things about it. So it becomes so loud that negativity seems like it's disappearing. And it doesn't mean it's not there. It's just we're retraining a muscle that in society through generations and generations, we've been taught not to be loud about. We've been taught to be humble and quiet servants. And it's like, yes, I agree with that. And when negativity gets too loud, we need to swing that dang pendulum and we need to get loud about positive stuff. And we need to celebrate it and reward it and acknowledge it and appreciate it and amplify it in every possible way we can. It's a lot of times what we talk about here. Um, like you said, tragedy and the triumphs, the hardships become the beautiful things, but then we get very loud about the beauty in people's lives so that people can hear it and realize it's happening everywhere. There's goodness everywhere. You just got to look for it and then you got to get loud about it. And it comes back to like, you know, we celebrate people like you who take it upon yourself to show up for someone in need, to be there when they really need you, to be the person they needed in the moment they needed you most, to care about them, to say it's going to be okay and to do something about it. And like those moments when people become loud about those and those are the stories. And I always say it's folklore in a village because that's how the traditions were passed along through stories, myths and legends. And, you know, as these stories become louder and people go, oh, my gosh, you should hear the story I just heard. There was this woman who traveled to the other side of the world and she broke into this place and she called the, the social people and they came in and they did a raid and they saved these young kids. It's amazing. Do you believe that? And someone's like, wow, wow. And it's like those stories become louder. And all of a sudden they realize there are good people doing great things all over the world. And they can be one of them if they choose to in their own unique way. Obviously, I'm going to put a little disclaimer. Susan was very specific. Do not do what she did <laughs> unless you're well prepared and well, <laughs> well, up, well set up in the situation. But in your own way, get loud about it. I think one of my favorite signs at the airport that my wife and I always high five each other when we see is that if you see something like this, tell the security which is just signs of human trafficking, someone being taken. Um, you know, Believe it or not, I usually hold my wife and I's passports and we have different last names. So <laughs> I've had TSA look at me funny. I'm like, she's my wife. Chill out. Look at me on Instagram. Come on. But I'm glad they're looking. I'm glad they're watching. I'm glad they're paying very close attention to little tiny things like that because it's causing this to be found and and heard and seen and brought to life and light so that someone can do something about it. And it really is. People have said to me over the years, you know, I could never go do that. I couldn't, you know, be in Africa and hold a child that, you know, is dying or, you know, see kids eating out of garbage dumpsters and stuff like that. And I said, here's the thing you have to understand about all of it. Number one, you have the power to make a difference. Okay. That's, that's one thing. No one in this country should die alone. No one in any country should die alone. That's the first thing. The second thing is it's one child at a time. It's one person at a time. And when I was, uh, so I, I'm like certifiable at times, honestly. So I want you to imagine I'm like almost seven months pregnant and I was supposed to go to the UN camp, um, on, you know, on the Somali border. And um, because I was doing some stuff with the UNHCR at that time and I wanted to go to this camp and my husband's looking at me, Chris is like amazing. He, he knows, he's like, once I get in my head, I'm going. And um, anyway, then I get this call and the camp is broken out with cholera and I'm like, oh my gosh, this last trip I'm gonna get to take for 
the next couple of years because I'm not taking a, a nursing baby to a camp in Somalia. So I I was like, I've you know, I got to get on a plane. So I in this one trip, I go to Phnom Penh and then I fly to Malawi and we had built like a school there and done some other stuff in a long way. And so I decide I'm going to do this like last minute trip. Right. So I get to Malawi and my friend Jones, who's a social worker, he's like, Hey, you know, Susan, there's this girl I want you to meet. And I'm like, cool, I'll, I'll meet her. And so I go and there's this women's shelter and Jarek, it's a, a cinder block, Think about like a like a just a, a ranch style house that would be, you know, maybe about a thousand square feet, but made out of cinder blocks and the, the whole front yard, there's no yard, it's just mud. I walk in there and there's cinder block beds and I meet this girl and she's fourteen years old and her name is Maggie. And um and I, I she doesn't speak any English, only Chichewa, so Jones is translating. And I said to her, I said, Hun, what do you want to do with your life? And she looked at me with this fierce tenacity and she said, I am going to be an accountant. And I'm like, whoa. And at this point, she's walking, you know, literally about two to three miles each way to and from school. Both her parents had died from AIDS. The uncle takes her in, rapes her, gets her pregnant. They find her walking the streets of the long way, six months pregnant, naked. All of her clothes, the aunt had thrown him into the latrine pit. She ended up um, pressing charges. The uncle went to jail, but everyone ostracized her. And I'm like, you know, your kids don't have to be born out of your body. I'm like, this, this young girl is like the complete incarnation of me. Right. So I said, I have to help this girl. And the foreigners were not allowed to take children, regardless of what you hear in the media, foreigners were not allowed to adopt children out of Malawi. So I was forbidden to adopt her unless I moved there for five years, which wasn't going to happen. My husband would put his foot down for that, but I um, ended up sending her to girls boarding school um, to this day, you know, it's 10 years later, she calls me mama. Um, she had a little girl. I flew over there. The baby was breached. We're all having a moment. And uh, I named the baby. Her name is Honor. And I chose that name because when every time the teacher calls this little girl's name, she's going to sit up a little bit taller. And it's a very prestigious name. Like it means like judge and authority, someone who decides. And, um, you know, she's Maggie's gone to college. She has uh, one more year to get her MBA. And I changed her life. And and it's not like, oh, yay, Susan, you're amazing. It's It's just the point of the story is that it's one person at a time. And it doesn't have to be financial. It could be serving like the gentleman you spoke about. It could be volunteering. Um, you know, if you're a medical professional, it could be going in and um, offering your services to at these trauma centers. They're always looking for people to volunteer. It could be um, going in and doing a reading program or, or, you know, feeding people. I have a friend, Gordy. Um, he's an author, Gordy Bufton. Shouts out to Gordy. He doesn't tell anyone, but every Friday night he's feeding the homeless here in Phoenix. He just goes. He's like, you know, oh, what are you doing Friday night? Oh, you know, and it's like you said, he's so humble about it. And I think that there's there's a difference between being boastful and just doing something 
that's worth telling the story and spreading it out. You know, hey, I'm going to the shelter on Friday night. Do you want to come with me and, and hand out some meals? I mean, there's nothing boastful and braggy about that. I think the more we get out there and we serve and we we really connect with people who have lives that are so different than our own, it, it really changes things. It absolutely does. Here's a question. What's been an awe-inspiring moment over the years? Oh, gosh, so many. This one, like, <laughs> so I'm I'm trained in NLP, so I'm certified in NLP, like, um, as a coach and a therapist. And I don't practice, I don't see clients one-on-one, but as a speaker, I use it and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it, this is not on theme. And, and again, I'm just going to lay it all out. But there is a... Um, when I, when, when I need to strengthen myself, and we all do at times, in NLP, there's a technique called anchoring. And um, it can really be, you know, it, it could be something like taking on a persona, right? Or it could be um, something as simple as thinking about a time when you were confident and um, you accomplished something. So back in... Um, in 2000, in a 16-week period, I was diagnosed with progressive MS. Um, my marriage ended. I won't go into those details. Love, love, love him still. Um, you know, forgiveness, all of the good stuff. Um, walked into my health club. There was a padlock on the door um, for failure to pay taxes. I had no idea. Buried my head in the sand. And I went from being on radio, television, all of it in Canada to having literally nothing, Jarek. And when I was first diagnosed with progressive MS, I was told I'd be in a wheelchair in 10 years and dead in 20. And my first thought before grief was, oh, I haven't done the Ironman triathlon yet. I mean, this is like how I think, right? So fast forward a year and I'm training for Ironman Malaysia. And, and I want to share this story because for anyone listening, there's a moment in our lives, when we're going for a goal, it could be a p business goal, having a child, whatever it is for you. And there's a moment where there's such a test of faith. So I'm training for the Ironman. I'm a year into the diagnosis. I'm not feeling good. In my heart, I know it's probably the only Ironman I'm going to do. I had my pro card for triathlon. So I had I was racing pro and I'm in Toronto and I'm on my trainer and it's January and I'm four hours and 45 minutes into a five-hour bike ride and the bolts um, come off the trainer and I go smashing forward um, feet cleated into the pedals and smashed my pelvis on the top tube. And I blacked out um, and, you know, was nauseous and start to, you know, come to. And uh, my husband's like, hey, um, my, this is my new husband, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, he's like, hey, I need to take you to the doctor. And I'm like, I'm not going. They'll tell me I can't race. Fast forward time, um, 13 days later, I get on a plane and head to uh, Kuala Lumpur to do Ironman Malaysia. I can barely sit in a seat. I definitely can't get on a bike. It's so painful. And while I was flying from Kuala Lumpur to Langkawi Island, the press is there and the, these guys from Triathlete Magazine were there and they're like, yeah, 
who's Susan Sly? And the guy's like, oh, she's been in our magazine. She's an up and comer. Um, and they're like, and I didn't even know this. And they're like, oh, this, you know, poor her. Cause Natasha Badman's here at that time. She was number one in the world. The field was like unbelievable. A lot of the top women triathletes at the time. And so I go and I register and I go to try, I put my bike together and I go to try and get, sit on my bike. And the pain was so intense, Jarek. It was like a, someone taking a knife and just jamming it into my pelvis. And I sat on the curb and I started to cry. And there was this still small part of me that somehow had faith that I was going to be able to do this race, but I didn't know how. And this guy comes and sits down beside me and we start having the conversation. And he said, hey, a bunch of us are going to go for dinner tonight. And I'll never forget. It was at the Sheraton on Lankawi. Would you want to come? And I'm like, OK, sure. And there was this small voice. I was like, just go, Susan. And so we get there and there's this um, all these chairs are in a circle and there's 12 of them. Very, you know prolific number and one empty. And I, I sit down beside the empty one, still feeling a little sorry for myself. And this guy comes late. He sits down. We start a conversation. I said, uh, so what do you do? Are you here for the race? He said, no, I'm an ER doctor from Denver and I'm here to support my friend. And to make a long story short, um, if he ever listens to this, I totally forget his name. He froze my pelvis. I did the race. I flatted out all my tires. It was over 120 degrees with humidity. A third of the field didn't finish. And I came eighth in the pro division of that Ironman. And, uh, and that moment for me personally is one I still use to anchor myself and I think the biggest thing I would I would say to everyone listening is find that moment for you. Maybe it's giving birth to a child or winning a spelling bee when you were in grade five or whatever it is for you. But find that moment that you can anchor into, that moment that says you're enough, you're courageous, you're, you're bold, you're amazing. And when you're having those moments, anchor it into yourself and, and you'll be amazed at how you can take any past triumph and use it to create you know, so much goodness and success for, for everything that you really put your mind to. Mm, so powerful. So powerful. I was cheering for you over here. I didn't want to interrupt you. But I was like, <laughs> go, go, Susan, go. <laughs> okay. So we, we have some rapid fire questions, some fun ones here. Number okay. one, what's your greatest fear? It used to be snakes until NLP. <laughs> So now it's not snakes. Um, my greatest fear, um, all kidding aside, is is really um, outliving any of my children. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And in the future, what are you most excited about? <sighs> oh, well, since I was a little girl, I wanted to live in America and um, – we do now. We're here on visas. When I first met you, as you'll remember, I was living in Canada. But um, I, one of the things I'm most excited about in the future is the day that I get to vote, that the day I get to become a citizen, I'm going to throw a big party in my backyard. Um, and, you know, I, I, I really feel and I know not everyone might agree with this, but I feel deeply patriotic 
I love that I get to live here. I love that we can do a show like this and I can speak my truth and you can speak your truth. That doesn't happen everywhere. There's a lot of censorship that goes on in the world. Um, so that's the thing I'm most looking forward to. Yeah. Mm, I love it. Now we're I'll gonna... invite you to the party. I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to switch gears to the second segment of the show. This is the nuts and bolts. This is the tactical, tangible, pla practical, applicable, immediately applicable type tips from you to our audience. Uh, the first question here is, where do you currently focus the majority of your thoughts and time and life each day? I am very, very anchored in a getting started process in the morning. And, and my big tip would be for everyone is figure out what works for you. So there's a couple of things that I can, you know, to start the process. Number one is keep a log for seven days of your level of motivation in the following areas, your health, your primary relationship, if you have one, your, um, you know, making money and uh, just maybe life motivation and begin to scale it. And you're going to, this is the best personal development exercise ever. And you can continue on for more than seven days, but you begin to see there's a pattern and then take a look at it. You know, if I if you get a certain amount of sleep, does the motivation increase or decrease? If you eat a certain way or drink enough water, does the motivation increase or decrease? If you read certain things, watch certain things, does the motivation increase or decrease? So you begin to become your own science experiment. So I've done this um, for a long time to really learn, you know, about myself. And so the result for me is that optimal what does it look like for me? It's seven hours and 15 minutes of sleep. It's getting up at 4.30 in the morning, um, making really good, strong, organic coffee, prayer, meditation, gratitude, journaling, writing. Um, kids get up. I'm doing hair. and making protein shakes. My husband and I go out and we run for three miles. Then we come back, kids going to school. I go into the office, you know, so is my first thing is really find your optimal because you know, what I do or what Jarek does or any of his amazing guests do might not work for you. You are such a beautiful, amazing individual. Once you know you're optimal, like you're like, look out world. <laughs> so that's the first thing I would say. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Now, what has been a key to your success in all that you've done? I am very, very, very um, de determined. Um, I think determination is something that can be learned. I feel that we're in a society that um, Microsoft did a study, and, and some of the study has been disputed, but I think we can agree, disagree, or whatever the case is. But what the study was, is the human attention span shortening? And so the conclusion was that currently the human attention span is less than a goldfish. And then other researchers said, hey, that isn't really true. It's dependent. But 45% of people currently, this was published on um, Apple's website, I believe, 45% of people currently feel they're highly distracted at times. If you can be determined and you can be find your optimal, then the great news is you're going to be less distracted. You're going to get more things done. And I think one of my greatest gifts currently, I am the president of an AI company. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I have a massive team of people. I have a Silicon Valley team. I have a, a team here in Phoenix. Plus, I'm taking a course in uh, AI and machine learning at MIT. My dad always wanted me to go to MIT, and I'm like, I failed calculus, dad. I'm never going to go. But here I am at 46 going to MIT. I, I did get a T-shirt. I'm, I'm, you know, not that humble. <laughs> I wear it all the time. Um, you know, I have a, uh, I have a digital marketing agency I own, plus, you know, speaker author. I also have another business, plus the kids and you know so on and and i would say my you know my greatest strength is the combination of optimal and determination so if i don't know how to do something i'm going to be curious about it i'm going to seek out people who do know how to do it i'm going to ask a lot of questions i'm going to figure it out and i think all of this stuff can be trained. I mean, I don't want anyone listening to this show to go, well, I'm not Jarek Robbins. No, you're whoever you are, you know, be you, do you figure out what your optimal is, learn the determination, learn the focus and just get stuff done. I love it. I love it. Well, there, there's one question and you kind of gave it already, but just in case you have another What's one tip we could leave everyone with that'll help others achieve and experience the kind of success in their life that you've been able to create in yours? Oh, well, let's stack it. So we're going to find optimal. We're going to be determined. One thing I've done for 16 years is I have kept daily notebooks of all of my, like, productive activities. Um, I'm not even kidding you. I have bins and bins of them. Like, it's just crazy. And the keeping the notebooks has been a tremendous exercise in self-reflection. And, and, you know, like you, I've, I've been very, very fortunate to attend events and speak on stages with people like Tony Robbins and like Jack Canfield and Mark Victor Hansen and, you know, who writes their first book and both Jack and Mark endorse it. I mean, I, I have those, that background. So I've, I've put myself through a lot of immersion personal development and I've also trained a lot of immersion personal development as well. So the, the thing I would say to everyone is get a notebook, do your, figure out your daily motivation, figure out your optimum, figure out you know, where you're, you know, there's something that you, if you were a little more determined, there's a problem you could solve. And then the last thing I would say is keep copious notes, you know, and Einstein kept copious notes, Leonardo da Vinci kept copious notes, um, you know, chronicle your life, look at, you know, any area of your life that you want to excel in and start to take at least five actions every single day toward that goal. And, you know, after a whole year, we're looking at 1500 actions plus that you took, of course, you're going to get there. It might not happen this year, but it'll definitely happen. I love it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us and sharing so much love and life and stories and adventures with everyone. We very much appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I love what you're doing in the world. And I remember the first time I met you, your your smile just illuminated this massive, massive room with hundreds and hundreds of people. And, and one of the things I will contribute to you is that you're this person that, you know, they're, they're, there are just these people and you're one that, you know, I would liken you to a lighthouse wherever you are, Jarek, you, you just cast this amazing brilliance where people just in your presence just feel better about themselves. So thank you. Oh, 
And if people <laughs> want to connect with you, learn more, check out your books, connect with you online, where do they? Where should we send them? They can go to SusanSly.com. Um, I, I have a, a bot on there. So if you want to message me, you heard the show, I will get those messages. Um, they come through a team. So SusanSly.com is a great place to reach me. Very cool. And thank you for the kind words. I always appreciate those. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> And for everyone tuning in, if you liked what you heard here, if you know a family member, a friend, a colleague who needs to hear this, we believe that sharing is caring and we like caring people around here. So make sure to share this with someone you care about. And we very much look forward to seeing you all next episode. 